We, we love Chris. And Chris, by the way, for those of you that don't know, I did mention him in the e newsletter this week, I believe. Yes. Um, when he's not on stage, he's up working with Dave to keep the, the video and the audio and the internet all going. So we appreciate that very much. And of course, we, yes, yes. And of course, we now have percussionists. We've got French horn players. We've got uh, guitar players and, and violinists. Uh, are, uh, sorry? It's, it's a cast of thousands, is what Gwen said. I had to ask once again because I don't speak Tennessean fluently, but if eventually I do get it. Some, some hard words need to be said, and this is, this is, I want you to share this with friends that have been hurt. I want you to click subscribe and you know, hit the bell, but I want you to also share this with people. I want you to check in online. We are here for many reasons. We're here to spread the, the story of Jesus is the main one. And we're here to cross all borders. Uh, borders that we know some of you are watching in countries where you would be in big trouble if they caught you watching. And we pray for you. We know this. We know others are here because during COVID, their fellowship communities were broken. Uh, many churches have closed, never to open again. Others are opening, but really struggling to maintain big, elaborate structures and big, elaborate programs. And so we created this, or God did, and shoved us into it, a way for people to worship. Uh, an example, uh, there is a, a house church in... Spokane, Washington, that reached out and said, is there ever a chance we could get you up here? The, the local church even wants you to speak there and then us. And I said, yes, and started arranging. I said, I could visit your house church on this day, speak at your church this day. And I got a thing back. Well, there are three house churches in Spokane. We had no idea. You know, uh, and, and that's the way it has been going. Uh, showed up in a function for GraceWorks this week, and as they were directing us where to park, a man that I don't remember ever meeting, uh, I walked up to him to find what door to enter, and he, he looked and he goes, I see you on TV. And my first thought, I was going through cops, I was going through 48 hours, you know, I had to uh, sort through all of that. And he said, you're a pastor, you're a great pastor, that church is, here's the thing, I still don't think of myself as a pastor, or a preacher. I'm just a scientist that kind of life took into a dark room and beat about the head and shoulders several times. And God had to teach me by dragging me up and down stairs. But I just want to tell people about the Jesus I found in all of these things. And so I find myself now leading a church which is full of people that churches rejected or hurt or left, or they're just not around. And God then hits a reset button, and we get our safe harbor. And I'm so honored to be a part of it, but I've already, I've already talked to, uh, to uh, Nico over there and saying, all right, um, I need you to be in a slot. Get ready to take it over, because, you know, at my advanced age, you know, who knows what's going to happen to me. I, I could be, I could be um, raptured, except I don't believe in that, so... Um, <laughs> That would be problematic on the way up. I would probably be arguing with God about why didn't you make this much more plain. Anyway, the point is, we want this to survive us. But to get, for this church to survive and for you to survive and for faith to survive in places like Ukraine or in Iraq where Iran fired more than a dozen missiles into Erbil 
which is a U.S. air base last night. Sometimes I think people just want World War III so bad that they can't stand it. What do we do? What do we do with churches? And to be very blunt, what do we do with church leaders? John 9. John 9, and John 9 is a fascinating study in theology, psychology, and sociology. And it makes it one of the most fascinating chapters in a very fascinating book. It starts with a fascinating question, which is the way you would do if you're a fascinating chapter. John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You and I read this and we go, what? But no, no, that was, that was normal. In Jesus' day, religious leaders taught that Exodus 34 and verse 7, that the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the third and the fourth generations, uh, was literal and that it explained suffering. Why do some people suffer? Born to the wrong family. Somebody must have done something wrong. And so that's why you suffer. There are religions that still teach this. If you ever go into India and you see the beggars on the streets and you're wondering, well, why is it, aren't people helping each other? It's actually against their religion. They feel like, no, they've got to work out the suffering or they're going to be born right back into it. You know, they're going to be reincarnated right back where they were or worse. So no, we don't help them. Well, there are religions like that, and this was going that direction. They were going, no, no, we don't help them. This is a blind person. Obviously, he sinned or somebody else sinned. Now, how could he send when he was blind from birth? Believe it or not, the religious leaders at the time said it was possible for a fetus to sin. To, um, I'm not, I do not have a list of how they figured that out. But they said, yeah, you can, in your prenatal, pre-existent state, even before you entered your mother's womb, out in the ethos somewhere, in the, um, out in the atmosphere, you might have done something wrong, had a bad thought. Jesus dismissed this entirely. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now think about that. Immediately, here's this big thousand-year-old doctrine, and I'm exaggerating a bit there, but not too much. And Jesus doesn't say, let me deconstruct all this for you. He just goes, no, no, neither. And by the way, Jesus does that with a lot of long-held doctrinal ideas pushed by the religious leaders. Jesus says, no, this is an opportunity to show the work of the grace of God. Think about this. Notice something. The apostles treated this person as a theological problem, not a person. They didn't see blind man, let's help. They said, they saw blind man, this is a theological issue. Who sinned? So we know where to, to, uh, to append the blame. What would it be like if we didn't do that? Instead of why does God allow people to be hungry? Our response is, oh, there's a hungry person. Let's feed them. What if our response was different? No karma, no cosmic balance. Jesus just calls us to personal action. Do what you see to do. And he doesn't wait. In fact, he even says this. He'll talk about, you know, day is limited, night is coming, while it's day, do the work. We taught this to our kids time and time again. That if the teacher said your book report was due in a week, you don't have a week. 
Because you don't know what's going to happen in your life. You don't know what emergencies, what illnesses, what other things will hit, what other homework will be given. You have today to get that done. Jesus, we got it from Jesus. We cribbed a lot of stuff from Jesus, frankly. And, and in fact, I still, I, I plagiarized uh, four guys that wrote these books a long time ago, every Sunday. Jesus doesn't wait. He says, no, you cannot wait. The time comes when you cannot work. He knows his time is limited. So he teaches the apostles that seeing someone in distress or with needs is a sign, not a sign of sin to be sought out and sourced, but of an opportunity to show grace and love. Churches, we got to get that. And he uses, as we talked about last week, spit and ceremony and tells him to bathe in the pool of Siloam. But he never expressly says, read that chapter. He never expressly says why or that healing was even a possibility. He never brings that up. He just gets the guy mud-coated eyes and gets him away. The man may have overheard something about healing, but it's not mentioned here. When the man goes and washes off the mud, he causes a sensation. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. By the way, the human capacity to lie to themselves, to make, them make, make sure they're not troubled in any of their assumptions is limitless. To immediately rationalize and move boxes around, it's limitless. So here they're saying, we lived next to this guy all of his life. Isn't that the blind guys? And others are going, I don't think it can be because that guy can see. That's what humans do. And I got to tell you right now, I don't know when we'll ever figure this out. You don't win arguments on, on the internet. You don't. Because facts won't help you. Relationships and stories help. But facts don't. So, let's um, carry on here. Others said, no, no, no. Um, that, that can't be him. And by the way, that's a very, very important passage to know. Because one of the things that atheists say a lot. Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Demet. They say a lot. They'll say, well, of course they thought they were miracles back then because people believed in miracles back then. People believed in, as Carl Sagan put it, a demon-haunted world that is just full of the... And the people just assumed they didn't have a concept of germ theory. That's correct. Uh, they didn't have a concept of this other. So they just, um, you know, people said it was a miracle. It looked like a miracle. So they said it was a miracle. No, people were skeptical back then too. They had seen a lot of charlatans. They'd seen a lot of traveling healers by this stage. A lot of traveling exorcisms. Do you remember that in the book of Acts when the traveling exorcists uh, were coming through and one of them you know, watched Paul work pretty good? So he said, in the name of the, you know, the God of Paul, come out. <laughs> Demon looked at him and goes, I know Paul. I know you. Or I know God. But, you know, I, you know, I got you. you know, in other words, you don't have the right to do this. You have the power. The, the skeptic of the time, they'd, they, they'd seen that. So they wanted to find, all right, who's the guy that did this? Who made him able to see? But he wasn't anywhere near Jesus. And not to really trying to be comical here is, 
he couldn't have known where Jesus was because he couldn't see. Jesus had gotten him far away before he saw. So he says, I don't know where he is. Well, this was very distressing to the community. Uh, again, was he begging, lying all this time, just getting money and all the other? Who knows? So they brought him to the Pharisees. Why? Well, because there is no difference between political life, business life, community life, and religion. They're all intertwined. Now, they still are, for example, in Islam. And that's why uh, people in the West look upon Islam as a, as a greater threat than, let's say, Hinduism. Because um, Islam says, not only must you have this religion, this religion includes every step of your government every aspect of your government. The Jewish people felt that as well. They felt, oh, something, something is wrong here. We gotta, we gotta go to those who speak for God so that they can interpret all the signs because they, they're the ones who do. And they'll, they'll tell us what's going on. So John chapter nine, starting in verse 13. And they brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eye was a Sabbath. All right, if the Bible came with sound effects, at that point, it would go, dun, dun, dun. And those of us that use subtitles, it would have foreboding music. I, I actually wish I just kept a catalog of all the descriptions of music on my subtitles. But anyway, therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man <laughs> replied, and I washed, and now I see. He didn't say it, but basically, end of story. That's all I've got. Some of the Pharisees say, well, this man's not from God. Why? He, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Oh. Others said, well, how can a sinner do these signs? And so they were divided. Church people, I was raised that way. I remember my entire early life was filled with these questions. I was told in no uncertain terms that Mother Teresa, who probably loved God and poor people more than I ever will, we're, I was told she had zero chance of salvation. She's Catholic. She wasn't one of us. I can remember, and it wasn't just Catholics, by the way, equal opportunity offenders. You know, it, it, if they were not of us, they had zero chance. Zero. Period. And we didn't have the courage to say that out loud when people would say, are you saying my mama is in hell? We'd be going, well, it's not for us to say. But we really said that. And we really knew it. And we were being hypocrites. And it chills me to the bone now that I remember once when I was a teenager and I was in Paris at, um, in, in the cathedral, Notre Dame. They actually have more than one, but Notre Dame. And standing there, very quiet. There were no tour groups around. And down one of the the long halls, I'm not going to give all the, the titles, there was a mass being done for a small family there that had gathered, probably a funeral mass or uh, a mass for illness. And I heard my father was there, and my father quoted, you know, many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name do miracles and do many mighty works. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That was our attitude. They had nothing, no chance. We insisted that God had a very distinct, well-defined set of rules, and we had to st stay within those guardrails to have any chance of escaping an eternity in hell because religious people told us so. 
that no matter what good these people did, it was nullified just like Jesus because he, no, he didn't keep the Sabbath. So he's not from God. He gave you your eyes, but you should feel guilty about it. And we might have to throw you out of the, of the, um, the entire you know, synagogue and you can't go to the temple because we just don't like your story. Note once again, the apostles dismissed the person and saw a problem. The Pharisees saw a problem and dismissed the person. You get that? He does not fit within our mind polity. The way our mind is set up. He does not fit within our presuppositions and our attitudes and what we've been told. Therefore, he is an outlier, a unicorn. He's over there. We don't accept this. Because the theology, the system has to be protected at all cost, including the cost of humans, broken, families, split, churches divided. We've been through it. Many of you have been through it because you email me. I started answering emails yesterday at 7 in the morning, 7 at night. I was still answering them. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, the fun thing is, while I'm answering them, I'm looking at more showing up. It's... Um, it's, I'm out there shoveling the waves back into the ocean, basically. And by the way, still email. That's not, I'm not a complaint. That's not a complaint. I am a complainer, but that's not one of them. Uh, it's, it's what I do. I'm fine with doing that. But the farce continues. Look at, look at this, verse 17 through 23. They turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It's your eyes he opened. It's your fault. He goes, he's, he's a prophet. In other words, he's, he's a good man of God among the people. They still did not believe that he had been blind. What, what does that require? What level of denial? Well, I see it every day in people. And again, on the internet, but you also see it in people's lives. Yeah, in denial. So... They, they call for his parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? <laughs> he told them the story. It was a short story. A guy spat, put mud on my face, washed it off, I can see. That's it. There's no plot line, no car chase. That's it. Well, then they go, um, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You ever been afraid to say something, think something? You ever been afraid to ask a question? You ever been afraid to wonder about God and Bible and Scripture and the like? But no, you had no way to ask that was safe. John 9's in here for you. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided, already had decided. Mm. Did you ever catch that before? That anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why he said, they said he's of age. Ask him. It's a farce. It's just an absolute farce. As if a person could be pretending he was blind all of his life for those amazing alms you'd get. 
Then John chapter 9, 24 through 34. Yeah, yeah. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. In other words, say the words we want to say. Say them in a way we want them said. Say them when we want them said. And then you will please God. Does that sound like every church you know? Not all of them. Not all of them. I don't want to use that big paintbrush because I happen to think that most Christians are amazing, wonderful people. And that many churches are trying their best to be good. But church leaders are often well behind the congregation. The congregation's moved on. It, I know that in my the congregations and tribe in which I was raised, that the younger people, as in anybody under 60, didn't care about instrumental music, wasn't upset about the voices of women, at, to you know, divorce people, they might have a chance, you know, that sort of thing. And yet the leaders, no, 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 no. They weren't leaders. They were dead weight. And there's no other way to put it. I used to have to drive to work by driving up 31, 31, from Spring Hill to Franklin. Now that's brutal. It's, it's not many miles. I don't know what, 11, 12, 13 miles. But it could take over an hour. Because it was just, you had schools there, you had, and the only section that was 55, most people ignored it. And they still drove 40. You know, and you're just going, you know, not, not that I would do that, but I do that. And I can remember once looking at the big long traffic in front of me, and, and there were about 12 or 15 cars, and this is not unusual, held up by one slow car that was driving 15 miles under the limit. And it hit me hard. Patrick, sometimes you might think you're a leader when all you are is a clog in the pipe. I began to think about that pretty seriously. And I did what people do. I applied it to that person before I realized I had to apply it to me. That just because you got people stacked up behind you doesn't mean you're a leader. You might be impeding their motion forward. Pretty rough. Oh, but it's people, many churches survive by stressing their correctness and criticizing or condemning all others. There have been wars fought over whether or not the presence of Christ was literally or just metaphorically in the bread and the cup. People died. Children left orphaned. Children sold into slavery because their parents believed the wrong thing. And it's still going on. Jesus hears about this. And, he res and by the way, they, they keep going. He was a sinner. And the guy goes, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, now I see. Then they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I've already told you. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want, oh, this is when, you see, when you're in an argument, make your premise and never move. He moved. He added to the story a question. What, you want to become his disciples too? Oh. You can see his parents going, they gotta, gotta get out of here they, they hurled insults at him what did the guy the guy hadn't done anything you are, you, are, you are this fellow's disciple we are disciples of Moses we know that God spoke to Moses but as for this fellow we don't even know where he comes from oh I will t again 
Most churches, I don't think, fall into this, but if you got church leaders like this, run, get away. They're holding you up. Jesus needs you free to do good. Um, and that's just, you don't have to run our direction. This isn't a rah-rah, this is the only place to go. God has many communities. God has many places. But keep aware. Keep your eyes open. You're allowed to ask questions of God. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. So we got a miracle worker here, and you guys don't even know who he came. You're supposed to be the leaders on top of this. We know that God does not listen to sinners, because that's what they tell you. I was told all my life, no reason for sinners to pray, God won't listen. I, I was. I was. Uh, we know God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Well, nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he couldn't do any, He could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. Oh, we've come back to that. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Did you know what John 9 was all about? By the way, Jesus finds out. Let's go listen to him. I like him better. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. When he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he? The guy said, tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. It's a little play on words because he's, yeah, got eyes. You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. You saw how these men's doctrine blinded them to God working, blinded them to opportunity, blinded them to the personhood of the person, instead looking at them as a problem or a theological issue. I'll never forget one of the first emails I got. We were only a couple months in, and, and the email was not by, from a bad person. It wasn't sharp. It wasn't, they said, are you, are you going to let any you know, gay people in your church? I said, I don't know who's watching. And I'm not at the gates. I said, I guarantee you we have got, we've got gay people in the church. All through the community. LBGTQ. I, I, we've got them. Doesn't mean we know them. And we also have people who have every single different theological idea about that from okay to horrific. Because our doors are open. We're going to let God sort this out. We're not here to judge these things. And I wish this story would be so much better if I'd been there. But I wasn't. I had to get this secondhand. A friend of mine went to a citywide gathering. This was about 15, 20 years ago when the LGBTQ community was just kind of Bumping up against the church now, and what does the church do? And so they were meeting. The conservative church is not just one denomination. It was uh, basically the, the more conservative Protestant churches in the area. About what to do, how to handle this. And sometime during the process, you know, what to do with this problem. One young man stood up. And he said, my name is Mark. And I'm not a problem. I'm a person. No matter what you believe, no matter where your stand is on this, that should make you stop and think. It should make you pause and make you remember John 9. 
Because they believed any doctrinal error meant you were not of God and they defined what the error was. Let's be careful. All of this, we're going to cut away from this scene now, by the way. Uh, oh, I'll, yeah, I've got to do this. Uh, he says, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what, are we blind too? He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty at all. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, it's been better for you if you were blind. Because your eyes are open and look what you're doing with them. Jesus didn't always carry a lamb. <laughs> I think he would have been inadvertently squeezing the lamb at that point. You know, little eyes bugging out of the lamb. So he didn't always carry a lamb. And those of you who think that's irreverent have not gotten the humor in Jesus. And he had a great sense of humor. We're going to cut away from this scene now because he's about to tell them about lambs. And about him as a shepherd. We're going to cut away from this scene. And save that one for another day. But I want to let this hang in the air. The question of the Pharisees and Jesus' response. I, I get emails from both left and right. Demanding that I acquiesce. That I pull back. That I accept the wisdom of the people that believe this or believe that. And when I ask where they got that. And where they got that. That Monday thing. It gets very muddy and always, always, always comes back to, if you believe this or you accept this, there are consequences. Or, whenever I say, well, this passage in this book, you think we're blind? Do you think we haven't read books? Okay. You know what? There's a delete button on my keyboard. I had it especially installed, he said, lying. They come standard. They're right there. I don't have to deal with it. We are entering an impossible season. While war rages and missiles fly across borders, will we believe our eyes? Will we accept the eyewitness testimony of people who were not expecting Jesus to come back? And he did. Who did not change their story even when being tortured, imprisoned, killed. When Jesus heals us and forgives us, will we believe him? Or will we allow something in our head to say, I don't think so. You know, Jesus' death was good enough for everybody else, but you did that sin, so no, not for you. As if, as if your sin is greater than our God. As if God's in heaven going, oh, we didn't even think of that. He's God. Will you believe the story? When Jesus heals us and forgives us, when he shows us grace, will we believe as God, as Jesus believed, that God is a God of love who loves us and who is not interested in church fights or discussions? Did you notice how he just kind of went, no, none of that. He didn't argue religion with the Samaritan woman. What later when the apostle says that now that we ride into Jerusalem, he said, you know, it's not really given to you to understand all the dates at this point. He just kind of, we'll, we'll talk later, guys. They still didn't understand why he was even there and he wasn't going to fight them because he didn't see them as a problem. He saw them as people. Misha, would you bring your team up? And as you do, I'm going to step forward and try to be out of the way. Dave, is it okay if I step down? Thank you. Dave would like for me to step down any Sunday. <laughs> There's good television on. Which, of course, we know there isn't. Um, Jesus came to end the chains of sin, but also the chains put on us 
by religious leaders, by politicians, and by the mob, whether it's online or in person. You are free in Christ because he said so. Will you believe your own eyes?